out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of the guitarist, writer, producer. It is the one and only Lenny Kay, who's now got a new book that has just come out in the autumn of 2021, titled Lightning Striking. This is subtitled 10 Transformative Moments in Rock and Roll as he goes around various cities that had a major musical moment in their life. Um, it's a fantastic book, and I'm not just saying that just because um, I've read it and also I've just interviewed him, but it is an absolutely stunning book, and it's really well written by somebody who's obviously a writer. And Lenny Kay, just for those who may be wondering, he was with um, Patti Smith on her early albums and part of that whole punk scene, CBGB's Maxis Kansas City, and also worked with such people as R.E.M., James and also Suzanne Vega and her first two albums. He was the producer and um, this is the interview which is all very interesting because he was in London at the time and um, that's not that interesting though but um, I began by talking about his kind of memory of working with Suzanne Vega and those early albums and um, you'll get the gist basically um, there was a radio station that uh, they went to during the making of that first ever album in 1985 to talk about it and they just had a break from the studio and were doing a bit of an interview with Suzanne playing a few songs from the album which we had yet to hear and um, I'm slightly fascinated with that whole period and Suzanne Baker so we start talking about that before getting on to the book anyway just enjoy it's fun and uh, Lenny's just an amazing character I I can't I mean I I remember recording Suzanne's album but um I, I don't remember if there was a radio recording or not um but I mean what a wonderful record right yes well this was this I'll, I'll tell you because it's like it's like you and Suzanne have just kind of left the recording studio just to go to this radio station which is called WB AIFM New York City okay um, on the 19th of February and you're just there and you're just obviously still recording bits of it and doing the vocals and sort of trying to work out you know which I remember WBAI quite well and actually now I do remember it now that you mention it uh, it was probably the most progressive radio station in New York City which is uh remarkable yes absolutely and, uh, and you spend you spend so uh, basically 60 minutes in the studio, she plays about four tracks acoustically. You chat about it and you talk about it. And I just really? thought it's really interesting. If you ever get a chance, do check it out because it'll make I, you I would like I would like to hear. I mean, recording Suzanne was one of the uh, one of the highlights of my life. What a wonderful artist, uh, such a beautiful eye for lyrics and uh, and 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 the way she played guitar. Uh, and I always think that the culture called for Suzanne at that moment in time. It was a time of kind of larger than life um, characters, you know, Cindy Lauper, uh, Twisted Sister, um, bands made for the spectacularism of MTV. And, and, and so sometimes I think the culture really wanted somebody to bring things back to an intimate level. It's not, a million miles away from the kind of reactive uh, evolutions that uh, I talk about in lightning striking. You know, when things get to a certain point, you want to see what's on the other side of it. And, uh, you know, surely uh, Suzanne's album 
uh, you know, reflected that. And uh, if it was February 1985, that was really in the sweet spot of when they, we were working on that record. Yes, you were you were often talking about having to go back and do her vocals one more time, and and she was saying, "No, no, I can't, I can't do it one more time." Well, and you know, do Suzanne, you, Suzanne had a thing. She said, "I, I said, well, you know, she would go out there and sing, and I'd say, okay, great, could you do it again?'" And she says, "Oh, I was just singing. I didn't realize we were doing vocals." And I'm thinking, mm, is there a difference? But uh, you know, a beautiful bell-like voice and. Uh, just, just a really wonderful, wonderful artist. And did you, I mean, it was one thing, the thing about the book as well, and as well as that moment, you seem to have a great ability to be in the right place at the right time, because you were talking about culturally in the mid 80s, you know, we'd had Suze, um, Cindy Lauper, we'd had Madonna, then we had the glam rock, and you know, you mentioned Twisted Sister, and I did an interview last week with JJ French, so there was this going on. Wow. And then, you know, this young singer-songwriters appearing, she's playing a few of these kind of folk clubs in front of a few hundred people, and how, I mean, you, you obviously kind of picked up that, you know, in this bombastic period, and New York as well, as, as you know, has been, well, you lived it, so you would know, the bomb, you know, the sort of drug scene, the kind of the, the period where it was kind of very poor, everybody's, you know, like struggling, but rent is cheap, but everyone's dying of heroin overdose. And then this folk singer comes along, and you think, this is what we need, <laughs> which obviously in hindsight is true, but at the time, you know, did you, you know, what made you sort oh, of... I, it was funny, uh, I, I was called in there by uh, Nancy Jeffries, who had signed Suzanne to A&M Records and, or was interested in signing Suzanne. And uh, her manager and my co-producer, you know, because nobody was listening to folk music at the time, um, thought, you know, tried to kind of spin her in a folk rock direction. Um, what Nancy Jeffries, uh, who, who discovered her for A&M, wanted was, a sense of the wider world for Suzanne without changing her, without making her more predictable in a certain way. Um, by a, a weird synchronous thing, I was very much deeply involved in listening to uh, Appalachian folk music at the time. I was working uh, at Electra Records doing these box sets of their catalog one of which was called Oh Love is Teasing, which had artists like Gene Ritchie and Suzanne, uh, Susan Reed and uh, Peggy Seeger, uh, who were doing the music of the Appalachians. It was essentially folk music doing songs of, that were brought over two centuries before from England, Barbara Allen and you know the child ballads. Mm. Uh, so I was, kind of really in that world but of course I have the other foot in the world where I, I like rock and roll turned up to uh, 11. So it was kind of nice to go down there and meet Suzanne and um, just see what she was about. I remember after I saw her for the first time I wasn't aware of this folk scene in West in the West Village that she was involved in but uh, I went there and I was really charmed by it. Uh, it seemed like yeah, it would seem like all of a sudden this was personal. This was somebody singing one-on-one -on -one to, yes. to someone else. And uh, I found that very inspirational. 
Yes, and um, it must be to sort of capture an artist who was like, oh, we might sell 30,000, we might do a couple of dates, to suddenly, you know, a few years later, headlining Glastonbury Festival on the Friday night and seeing those two albums just develop. You must well, have Well, you know, Suzanne was developing at a very rapid rapid rate. I, I always used to make a promise to myself that I would only do one album with an artist because if I did a really good job, they would get all my moves and then to expand and evolve, they would, they, they, they would need another mirror to take them to a different place. But between the first and the second record, Suzanne had assembled a band with a drummer and a bass player, et cetera, et cetera. So um, the whole concept the whole context had changed. And so I could come in and do basically what I did best with Suzanne, which is work with her personally, you know, uh, encourage her, uh, encourage her to take chances to become herself, essentially, which I believe is the job of any producer, that you want the artist to become as much of themselves as they can and open the doors so whatever the next album that comes down has a sense of uh, evolution of, of it's not you know it's kind of out of nowhere yes. and uh, it was amazing to watch Suzanne grow into this you know from a, a folk singer playing to 20 people on uh, McDougal Street to headlining Glastonbury it, it was quite a wild ride and she's still performing and doing incredibly beautiful works. Uh, she re-recorded a bunch of her earlier stuff in different contexts and, uh, um, you know, just really a marvelous performer that I feel so privileged to have been able to work with. Yes, it was definitely a moment which, um, yes, captures beautifully. Now, going to your book, which is quite, has been quite the page turner. Now, putting this together, <laughs> I, mean, I guess, I mean, I guess everyone's going to come at it from a different angle. Um, so my, my, one of the interesting things, because the chapters I've sort of gone straight through and read and sort of realised the depth is, is the one on sort of London, New York and then Liverpool. That's the kind of general gist of it. So sorry if I've blown it, not going from, you know. Oh, no, 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 you, you know, you're, you're geographically oriented, of course, <laughs> you know, the two English chapters and the one about... Uh, you know, the hometown. Yes, that's right. Did you find with the, especially the one on London, was the, were the chapters that you wrote, the, the, you know, how was it the ones that you kind of could experience and you knew what it felt like to be there and knowing some of the people to the chapters on the cities that you obviously wouldn't have been walking those streets and hadn't played some of those or known some of the players and musicians. Was there quite a difference in how you had to approach this, this particular publication? Um, I mean, since it's about music and m perception of music, whether I was actually there or present, um, I probably play a larger eyewitness role in those chapters, uh, especially in the New York chapter where I am a participant, but also, uh, you know, to me, most music you experience outside of its context it, as it travels. And I was as interested to see how, say, the San Francisco music that I listened to from afar uh, and then traveled to San Francisco evolved. Mm. I mean, all of these scenes seem to have their place within the larger uh, 
growth of rock and roll uh, in the same way that you know we measure the Jurassic period from the Devonian, from the uh, you know the Precambrian, the great archaeological levels of um, of, of 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 the Earth growing. Uh, so when I looked at rock and roll from the perspective of the year 2014, which is when I started thinking about this book, uh, I could see that there were definitely strata of, of you know, effluvium, I guess is the word, <laughs> where, where things would pile up and then there would be a change, you know, a climate change would be probably a, a good analogy. Of, of how the music evolved almost reactively and how did this happen and where did it happen in a time when uh, change was, you know, pretty much space and time that, you know, you, you couldn't hit a note on a computer and be in San Francisco and see the Grateful Dead at the Avalon no. you know, or the Fillmore. You know, you had to be there and see how it reacted to you as this little scene became a larger scene that actually changed the way rock and roll was perceived, played, and understood. Um, it was very much, you know, like 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 going on tour. You know, yes. you go to a city and you know you you meet the people there. You start in London and then maybe you go over to Paris, and there's a different atmosphere in how you approach the people. And then you know you you wind up in Japan somewhere, um, but. I don't know, it seemed to be an, a narrative structure that would encompass the history of rock and roll without having to be too spread out to tell the story of every person who influenced the music. It, it was very much a story of the third dimension as it moves into the fourth dimension. And yeah. of course, well, it becomes what the you, fifth you, dimension. Yes, and what you've obviously would know and, and experience is that the UK is very tiny, isn't it? It's a tiny little place and you can put it in your back pocket with America, it's so big. So totally. having, having done so many interviews with kind of American bands, I sort of realized that geographically it's so kind of, I, every place is almost isolated, isn't it? You get, the, you know, the Athens, Georgia scene, you yeah. get sort of Boston scene, you get New York, you get San Francisco. And then talking to lots of bands who were somewhere in between, which I can't remember, but they would say, oh, yeah, when we had to go to a gig, we had to drive seven hours. And I'm thinking, I felt embarrassed because I thought, oh, sometimes <laughs> I, I, I would say, okay. God, that's, that's like two hours. I'm not going to bother with that. And, you know, these people have gone seven hours driving all day through you know, through the deserts to get to see the Clash or the Smiths or somebody <laughs> like that. So that's kind of, you know, so that that's kind of an interesting thing with America is that, you know, that nothing is connected, whereas in the UK, everything is slightly because we're so small. And which there. is why when punk rock landed in the UK, it kind of spread like wildfire, where still in America, once the concept of punk was kind of defined and invented, it took a long while for it to seep out of the metropolitan areas. Yes. You know, but, there was New York, but, there was Los Angeles, San Francisco, and then you slowly made inroads into the rest of the country. Yeah. And do you did you sort of find during the book, because I've sort of realised, and you obviously would realise this more, um, is that most bands have a five-year narrative, don't they? A zeitgeist moment. You know, you have the honeymoon phase of about 12 months. And in this country, you know, you get a single, you know, if you've got John Peel to play it, who was this DJ that we all loved, you know, he would like, 
give you that kind of next step up and then a John Peel session at the Maida Vale Studios, four tracks, even bigger step up and you started to tour around the country in your little transit band. First album, things going well. Second album, mm, tricky. Third album, yeah. yeah, just forget it. And did you find doing this with the cities, there, were, there was a sort of, oh yeah, there was that period that started there, it was going well, oh, and now it's not going to be lasted. Did, did that kind of come up? It's, in, it, it's kind of the classic thing where this this amorphous this amorphous bundle of energy becomes a thing, and you know usually by the second year is when if people start realizing it's a thing, it has a, a personality and a definition, and uh, then as it becomes more and more defined and moves out into the world, it becomes hardened. And even though there will be great records and great you know performers coming out of that it's predictable. And when something gets too predictable, it starts to move into the realm of cliche and stereotype. And then it's time to change the channel. And I, I believe it is about five years, but I also believe that that's a good lifeline for any but the most immortal of bands. Yes. Uh, I, I, talk, I disagree a little bit because I think the third album is the charm. The first one, you're really figuring it out, even though you have a lot of songs that have made you popular. The second one is usually your reaction in some way to the first one, trying to, so you're out of balance. But the third one, you understand the studio, you understand how to work in the studio, you understand who you are. And I always think the third album is the one where, you know, you, you make your most definitive statement. Uh, fourth album, you know, you're continuing that. And by the fifth or sixth, it's, it's probably time to make room for, you, you've understood yourself too well. Yes, and you're, probably doing, and you're probably doing a jazz fusion, you know, medley. In, in, it's probably going to go. <laughs> <laughs> it's probably, you've, you've it's gone off. the covers album. Yes. I mean, one of the great things with Patty is that we had our, our four or five year run in the 70s with four albums that I think really told our story uh, from beginning to end. And then she left to Detroit and kind of moved into another musical sphere with her, with her husband, Fred Smith. And then uh, when she returned to, uh, you know, public performance in the mid nineties after Fred's unfortunate passing, uh, we had a whole new lifeline to explore in the albums we've done after that. You know, maybe there's four or five original ones. I've lost count, but, but they have a different texture and tone and, and, and way of, of, of understanding our music. And by that time, you've amassed a sense of who you are and how to present yourself in a way that you can just continue doing it. I mean, I look over at Patty these days and I see the same performer who I've witnessed for, for half a century. And yet she, she understands how to deliver the message and the passion of our music in a way that's that's very special i find that in myself too when i'm playing you know yes. there's a certain sense of experience and confidence uh and an ability to to reveal that to yourself and the audience at the same time yeah because because you know i mean it's kind of interesting what you said but bizarrely in your life and your, one of your major experiences in the 80s, that theory didn't quite work with Suzanne, did it? Because the first album, 
is kind of solid gold then it's like the record label go brilliant let's get you in the studio what's your you know where's your you know material and it's like i haven't got any so so that was the tricky one and the third album is even more tricky because you know the personnel changes so sometimes it kind of that 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 works and sometimes it doesn't I mean work. every artist has their own arc I, I i really appreciate suzanne's post me records because they they're more experimental they're, they're they take more chances they they explore different textures and sounds uh from a person that was just pretty much an acoustic finger pick guitar player she really um has explored the outer edges of her music to to an, an, an amazing extent, and uh, I, I appreciate her adventurism, her her daring, and her sense to not settle for what she did for the last record. I I believe Suzanne is actually an artist whose work has become more expansive over the years uh, as as she's been able to move deeper within herself. Yes, well, anybody who I've spoke to who's managed to sort of continue a career in music has had to do so much to keep doing it. And, and you know, I just... You kind know, of... you have to refresh it. Otherwise, why do it? I mean, there's a lot of songs, a lot of albums in the world. And if you don't have something specific to say in each album, why churn them out? I this mean, is true. Uh, this is very you know, true. So just briefly, so Lenny, going back to the book, you mentioned earlier that you started this in 2014. Was this mm -hmm. kind of one of those light bulb moments or had it been sort of on your radar for some, some period of time? I had been thinking about writing a book for a long time. My previous book was about the crooners of the early 1930s, Russ Colombo, Bing Crosby, a topic that I, I feel most people were bewildered by why I was into this. <laughs> but I, I, I really found a lot of, a, a lot of personal education in seeing how this music became popular uh, after the invention of the microphone and people were allowed to sing less stridently and how the music metamorphs uh, into what we would know you know in in the in the years pre-rock and roll pre even the the thought of the R&B that would turn into rock and roll. Yes. I really enjoyed. I really enjoyed that. But I've been thinking about doing some writing, and uh, you know, as, as always, uh, a topic is important. I didn't want to do a memoir. Uh, I'm not that interested in myself, uh, but I did want to do something that reflected my own involvement in the music, with the music as primary. I, I wanted to make myself a minor character while I was there kind of uh, an observer, but I also wanted to celebrate this music that has nourished and, uh, and, and made me who I am today. And uh, it seemed very, very right to kind of tell the evolutionary history of rock and roll in a way that I didn't think had been told before, which was through its flashpoints, through those locuses of energy that, that changed and moved the music forward or backwards depending on what yes. your tastes are <laughs> but uh you know that that you know and, and looking back over the course of the music from my perspective here in the second decade of the 21st century i could see that these were kind of markers mile markers 
to the music, you know, along the path of what the music was and would become. And so uh, I, I set out, I was like, I thought of it as a tour itinerary, yes. you know, I'm, I'm going on tour. So instead of going to uh, here and there, you know, I'm going to start in, in Memphis. I'm going to get in my time machine and go to Memphis in 54 and see how Memphis got to 54, because that's an important part of these years. It's not just I'm starting on January 1st. How did 54 happen? What happened after it? You know, then New Orleans, uh, let's, let's just go down to Mississippi, down to New Orleans. <laughs> and then, you know, up to Philadelphia, the teen idols. It, it, it seemed very demarcated to me. And of course, you know, knowing that the English invasion came along and totally rendered what came before that obsolete. You know, that all of a sudden there was a new way, an exciting way of making music. And those, those things happened soon when punk rock whatever punk rock is, came along, it was definitely a demarcation in, in the movement of the music. And, and I just followed it along till, you know, kind of uh, rock's glorious, uh, <laughs> you know, who knows what. Uh, yes. It's, well, it's, no, it's I, kind I, of weird conclusion in a way. And I would imagine as a writer, being able to get the structure some, somewhere sort of sketched out in your mind, then gave you the sort of like, on the, having total freedom, but actually thinking this is quite specific. I can really focus and nail each one. So did you do it chronologically as well when you wrote the book? I, I started with the third. The th I thought the Philadelphia chapter would be the easiest to write. Well, I figured out my voice. Voice is important when writing. Mm -hmm. And uh, in terms of the research, I, I knew that the Memphis chapter with Elvis and the uh, founding fathers of rock and roll would be difficult. Uh, I believe, uh, can't remember uh, whether uh, I, once the book was, was had found a home uh, here in White Rabbit Books, um, then I, I said about, I think I did the New Orleans chapter next because in a way it was the one I knew the least about. I mean, I knew kind of the highlights, yes. but I never delved deeply into how New Orleans came to be and how it its rhythm started in uh, in the 1850s with Louis Louis Marie Gottschalk, you know the great Creole pianist, yes. um, quite a nut, and they all are. <laughs> and then I think I moved to Memphis, and then I started writing chronologically, yes. uh, you know, starting with uh, Liverpool, and then kind of expanding the story from there. And did it so, take a while to find your voice? Because there was an all there was a writer. I spoke to recently, there's people like Nick Kent, but there's another American writer called Joel, Joel Sol Selvin. I know Joel, yes, from, from the West Coast. And, and, he, and his latest book that I read, I mean, he writes almost like a detective, you know, the sentences are short, they're very snappy, you know, it's like just one line well, full stop. You could imagine sure it with his problem. cigar, you know. Did you, right. did you take a while to, to get that, that voice in your... In your well, story? I mean, I've been writing for a long time. I mean, actually, you know, I've been a music journalist, critic, writer, whatever you call it, you know, since the tale of the 60s. So <clears throat> I kind of know how to find me, you know, some of it you kind of move this way because of the demands of the article or the liner notes or how serious you have to be or how flighty you can be or how stoned you can be. But uh, I, 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 you know, I, I, I knew how to write. I just wanted to make sure that 
especially in the first chapter I wrote, that I was able to synthesize a lot of information, a lot of research, but not get bogged down in it academically. Um, I really, I, I wanted to make the book readable mm -hmm. um, and, and fun in a certain way while, and, and insightful without, with, with, without burdening it with tons of footnotes and, you know, sidebars explaining this or that. I wanted to make it enjoyable to read in the same way that rock and roll is enjoyable to listen to. And, uh, you know, once I, once I kind of got the handle on the, first, on the first chapter I wrote, then everything seemed to, you know, fall into place. But it was a very difficult book to write. I mean, I probably only did, you know, two, if I had got 250 words a page, I was happy with that day. Sometimes yeah. I get two pages, you know, because I'm dealing with blocks of information. There's a lot of information on there, but I, I really needed to distill it. So it felt friendly and it felt somewhat poetic. And, and I don't know. I mean, I, I, now that I see it as a book, it's not just a collection of sentences. Um, I'm really pleased because it's it's dare I say it's it's readable, it it you know moves along. It has a, it has a narrative arc. It it makes a couple jokes when, in fact, now that I've forgotten, I wrote the jokes when I look at the book. I say, oh my god, that's pretty funny. You phrase that. I can make people <laughs> but, laugh. But um, you know, I'm really happy with the way it came out. I I really wanted to tell the story of the music I loved through my own prism, and. Uh, like I said, I, I, I didn't want to, to make it, I didn't want to overload it toward me, but I was there. I did see Jimi Hendrix at the Symphony Theater in Newark the day after John, uh, Martin Luther King's assassination. I did go to <clears throat> Golden Gate Park to the funeral for Chocolate George uh, coming down from the acid of the night before in the summer of love. I did see the Stooges and the MC5 and. I did live through CBGB and on and on and on. And also, mm. you know, I heard the music. You know, I wasn't in a LA hair metal band, but there were some songs I really thought were excellent pop songs, uh, despite the uh, crazy lifestyle, but maybe that's how those songs became. Um, I, I really enjoyed the, the time travel through, through the, you know, it's not the only places I would have liked to visit. There's so many great scenes. Uh, I, I really regret not spending more psychic time in Kingston because I love reggae music, but that, that I, I thought that would be, that would be too weighty a topic. I couldn't contain that within a chapter. Yes. Um, I'd wanted to go to Manchester in the 90s and, and the ecstasy in, in the Hacienda. <laughs> but I, you know, again, I had to like make sure that I didn't make the trip too long, especially for myself yeah. or the book too long, <laughs> as it turns out. And I'm sort of guessing that when you mentioned about going, you know, Kingston, at least you sort of felt as more of an ownership with the most of the places that you picked, especially the American ones, where did it feel a little bit like, God, oh, that could be really tricky going to another country and then trying to sort of 
have some sort of authority or ownership on that particular place. I do love reggae music and I've spent a lot of time within its world, but you know, I I wasn't there when Cool Herc was inventing uh, hip hop and and breakbeat up in the Bronx. It's, I I would have been kind of a tourist and all of these scenes influenced who I became as a musician and an appreciator of music. So I have to say, yeah, you know, I, I I had to rein the book in and make it so it reflected me. I didn't I, I didn't want it to be universal. I, I am, in the end, a, a rock and roller. Uh, I am a product of my time and space. You know, uh, I was 17 when uh, I saw the Beatles on television for the first time, and that changed my perspective on how to perform in in, in a musical combination. Um, I, I, I grew up, you know, alongside rock and roll. I, I do believe that. Um, yes. What you I say in the introduction. Because you were it, probably... It's good. kind of, it's been a parallel life to me. Yes. And I was going to say you're roughly the same age as David Bowie and Lemmy. And I always remember when they said, you know, they're most, yeah. they had musical influence and they both said Little Richard and then they, you know, ran off the other characters. But it was always Little Richard. But then I realised they were there from the birth and you've been there from the birth virtually, you know, without huggling, you know, yeah. arguing I mean, the point you know, too it's, much. It's, it's, it's an accident, you know, would, would I have, would I have perceived it all differently had I been born in, you know, 1983? Um, one never knows, do one. But, no. you know, again, my, my, my growth spurt <laughs> was, um, was, was, parallel with rock and roll's growth spurt. I was able to experience it as, as a really young kid, as a, a weird phenomenon that everybody, uh, all the older kids were listening to. And then I became one of those older kids. And yes. now I'm one of those oldest kids. <laughs> the wise one. Just one question on the Jimi Hendrix gig that you saw the night after Martin Luther died. Um, I'd read that he just played, was it one song like Machine Gun and then just put his guitar down? And went. No, I wasn't there. Um, that's um, sketchy. I don't know. I was there. I've read in. I've read several accounts of that night. One, he played the guitar like he never played it before. I'm sorry. I was there, halfway up into the audience. He did not want to. Be, he kept doing this thing, looking at his watch, just pissed, looking at a sea of white hippies, who really didn't seem to care that the leader of, of, of black America had just been assassinated. They wanted to see him smash his guitar. And so when he did it, he just did, you want it? You know, he, he just looked and then walked off the stage. You know, I, you know, all I can say is maybe somebody two uh, rows down saw it differently, but I just saw him play and be disgusted by the whole spectacle and feel the weight of his race. As, as he would increasingly. I mean, you know, Jimmy was never accepted by the black community um, for reasons that escaped me. Uh, but, but then, you know, it, those were people were taking sides and, uh, you know, it, it was sad, but, you know, because especially since he believed in a universal music, um, you know, he believed in a music beyond races, uh, a rainbow colored music. And, yeah. uh, you know, he should, he, you know, he, he represented it probably more than anybody 
of, of his era. Absolutely. Well, Lenny, look, Alex, I think she's behind you. Look at that, it's like Panto. But look, thank you ever so much. And thank you ever so much for this amazing book. It has been brilliant. And I have to say, it's probably going to be book well, here, thank you. isn't it? It's been great. And it's well, kind of basically... You're a serious, but I really enjoyed, uh, you know, writing it. I'm glad that people are reading it now. I can't actually believe it's out. I always, I never thought that, wow, is, is this book really going to happen? And so I'm just very excited and thank you for your time and energy. And, uh, yes. you know, here's to it. Keep the faith and the faith will always keep you. Well, look, that's beautiful. Take care. Thanks a lot and have a great evening and a couple of days you in too. London. And thanks again. Thanks, Alex. There you go. That Bye. is oh, that is the end of the interview. Vaguely, Alex is the PR person in them, who helped set all that up. Anyway, that was me in conversation with Lenny Kay, whose book Lightning Striking, Ten Transformative Moments in Rock and Roll is out and about, available from all good bookshops and also online. Um, this is on White Rabbit Publishing. 528 pages. It's quality and writing. It really is. So do check it out. And um, if you're thinking, what should I get for Christmas? That is definitely worth it. If you want to contact me for some nice but random reason, no, not that random, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, do C86show. Also, all these interviews have been um, archived. Lucky you. You can find those on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean. It's true. Just do C86show. Anyway, look, have a great week. Stay safe.